On behalf of Chess, I'd like to welcome you to one of our April 2018 podcasts. I'm Kyle Hogarth from the University of Chicago, editor of the podcast section. Thank you for joining us today for what's going to be another terrific conversation and a lively debate. My first guest is Dr. James Chalmers, Professor of Respiratory Research from the Scottish Center for Respiratory Research at the University of Dundee, Nine Wells Hospital and Medical School in Dundee, United Kingdom. He's here to discuss his article, Point, Should an Attempt be made to withdraw inhaled corticosteroids in all patients with stable gold 3 COPD. Yes. James, thanks for joining us. Thanks very much for having us. And to argue the counter side, Dr. Ian Paverd, Professor of Respiratory Medicine from the Respiratory Medicine Unit in Oxford, uh, Respiratory at Newford, Newfield Department of Medicine at the University of Oxford in the United Kingdom as well, here to argue the counterpoint should an attempt be made to withdraw inhaled corticosteroids in all patients with stable gold 3 COPD? No. So, Ian, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to, to be here. So, so, gentlemen, um, you know, let's let's take the gloves off. And <laughs> why are we having this debate, though? So, for our listeners, you know, for the longest time, you know, there's been this, you know, steroids are a, uh, an integral component of COPD. Uh, to, it, it almost feels sacrilege to, to say that we should be trying to withdraw them. So, so James, you know, give us give us the the the, the, the framing of this argument. How did this even come up? Um, I think so. One of the biggest uh, bits of progress I think we've made in COPD in the last 10 years or so has been recognizing that, that what you just said uh, is right. They have been part of COPD goal, uh, guidelines, goal guidelines for a long time, um, but possibly they've been recommended for far too many patients. And the result of that has been if you look at any population-based cohort of COPD patients, inhaled corticosteroids are overused to an unjustifiable degree. When you look at the, the clinical trial evidence for inhaled corticosteroids, they have really very modest benefits in subgroups of patients, um, but they're used in almost all patients uh, almost indiscriminately, I think because we've, we've extrapolated their excellent efficacy in asthma and thought they must also work in COPD. Um, but if you look at the trials, the history of trials with inhaled corticosteroids is is missed primary endpoints and um, you know very modest benefits in terms of exacerbations. So I think we've learned, uh, and Gold has learned, that they really should be reserved for a small subgroup of patients. Um, and so that's why we're having this debate, is somehow we have to address the overuse of inhaled corticosteroids. And one of the ways we can do that is to think about withdrawing them from patients where it's not appropriate. Ian. Well, I think I agree that there is overuse, and, and the real issue is that we continue to adopt one-size-fits-all management approaches for um, airway diseases that are clearly highly heterogeneous. Um, and where there has been an advance is that we now have uh, means of pulling out groups of patients that behave in different ways. And uh, uh, my belief is that inhaled steroids are an important treatment for a subgroup of patients with uh, COPD and that we can recognize these patients using um, your simple uh, clinical biomarker, the peripheral blood eosinophil count, and by taking a, a good history. So w what we're entering is a, an era of more precise use of treatment um, um, and the, the target for treatment will be a, a trait that you can identify using biomarkers. 
Um, I think it's more than a small number of patients that benefit from inhaled steroids. I, I think probably around 40 to 50% of people with a diagnosis of COPD um, have an eosinophilic profile and would likely derive some benefit from, uh, from this treatment. Um, it's small, in, um, and I think that's a reasonable point to make because of course, the main driver of morbidity in COPD, by definition, is airflow limitation. This is a, a secondary trait, if you like, so the benefits of blocking it will be diluted because uh, there are other much more important factors driving morbidity. So there's almost, there's almost two debates here then, if you will. One, I mean, from the perspective of the overuse of inhaled corticosteroids, if, if we both agreed on that point, um, if you both agreed there, um, that a de novo patient, should we consider starting them? But of course, the framing of this debate is, I have a patient who is arguably clinically, quote, stable, you know, on whatever branded of inhaler, um, should I be making an attempt to withdraw? And you, you could, you know, you can clearly see the both sides. One to say, well, if it's not broke, don't fix it. And the other side saying, well, however, why am I using a drug if there's not really a benefit and there's potentially some harm? I mean, is that, would that be a way to frame that discussion? Uh, so I, I think you're going to, you're going to see that as we go through this debate, although I come from a position of some skepticism towards ICS and Ian's more enthusiastic, I think we agree on 95% of the, the issues here. I mean, I think that came through in the articles that are published Indeed. in Indeed. that we, we agree on an awful lot of this um, because I, I think there's, there's so much data now that we are, we are, we're moving towards a consensus about where ICS should fit and around being more personalized with our therapy. And I think whether we're thinking about starting ICS or whether we're thinking about withdrawing it, the principles are more or less the same. Are, you know, is this patient going to benefit from the treatment? If they're not, clearly they shouldn't be taking it regardless of how long they've been on it. And, and, how do we, and, and is there a potential for harm? And one of the drivers of this debate has been the recognition increasingly of, of ICS-associated pneumonia and other side effects. Um, and I agree with Ian that one of the most important traits um, that decides whether that patient's going to respond is whether they've got the biological process that inhaled steroids target, which is eosinophilic inflammation. It makes complete sense that we don't treat patients um, for biological processes that they don't have. Um, and so that, I think that applies just as much to withdrawal as it does to... Um, as it does to starting the therapy. I think some of the concerns about withdrawal have been overblown. The idea that patients will suddenly experience lots of exacerbations after withdrawal simply isn't supported by the evidence. And some of the scaremongering about things like um, adrenal insufficiency, that patients would all get adrenal insufficiency if you withdraw their ICS, there just isn't any data to support that. And a lot of us are, are doing this in clinical practice very successfully. I think whether you're thinking about starting the therapy or you're thinking about withdrawing it, uh, the data suggests that in those patients that don't have the, the trait, they don't have the history of exacerbations and the evidence of eosinophilic inflammation, doing this is very safe. Ian, what do you think? Well, I think you made the key point, which is um, clinicians are reluctant to rock the boat if the patient seems to be doing well. 
Uh, and the key thing is to determine whether they're doing well because of the inhaled corticosteroids or partly because of that, or they would have been doing well anyway, independent of the inhaled steroids. And uh, this is a bit more difficult. Uh, but if we look at the WISDOM study, you can get some guidance from that. And this was a study that looked at inhaled steroid withdrawal in patients with uh, moderate to severe COPD. And they weren't necessarily doing well because they had to have had an exacerbation in the year prior to study. But the WISDOM study showed, I think, conclusively and compellingly that if um, this group of patients have a blood eosinophil count that's low, below 150 cells per microliter or 2% differential, um, they really don't uh, come to any harm when you withdraw inhaled steroids. And this was a large study. So I think um, uh, this is helpful because um, what you can, um, in your discussion with patients, you can uh, say based on uh, the profile and the, your biomarkers, um, I, I can be you know, pretty confident that you don't have the biological process that inhaled steroids target. I therefore conclude that there will be minimal benefit of this treatment, and there will, of course, be potential risk. And we've heard about the risk of pneumonia, which, incidentally, in a meta-analysis that I offered, uh, is 60% higher in patients with uh, low blood eosinophil counts below 150. So this is a population that not only... Um, are not likely to benefit from inhaled steroids, but are at higher risk of the um, adverse effect that, that worries us with inhaled steroids. So for me, it's becoming a no-brainer. Um, and I think that, uh, that James and I would agree that, that there's a, a great deal of potential good um, and uh, a great potential to use treatment more economically and efficiently um, if, if we, if we uh, start um, withdrawing inhaled steroids in patients um, with low blood eosinophil counts. But if a patient doesn't have that, has a high blood eosinophil count and is doing well, I think I would be, uh, I wouldn't stop inhaled steroids because there's every possibility that they're doing well, at least in part, because of that treatment. Can I, can I throw out the uh, loaded question to the two of you? If they're doing well on the inhaled corticosteroids, but they still have a fairly high peripheral eosinophil count, should you go up on the dose? Well, I think if they're doing it's well... Meant, it's meant so to be provocative. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I think uh, I wouldn't because uh, they're doing well. I think the issue is when they're not doing well and they have a persistent signal. Right. Um, we've recently shown that... Um, uh, that in patients on triple therapy, you know, with very severe COPD, there is some benefit from biological treatment with anti-IL-5, providing the biological signal is there, and, and it needs to be there, you know, pretty convincingly right. um, in order for you to see a, uh, a, a, a clinically important benefit. Um, so it's a biomarker that I think we, we need to get used to looking at and measuring in patients with... Um, airways disease. Uh, I think James mentions in his article that it's not perfect, and I would agree, but uh, I don't, I'm not aware of any biomarker we use in clinical medicine that is perfect. Um, yeah. But I think, yeah, this, this can help you make a decision, but it's one of uh, 
uh, a number of uh, variables one needs to consider, and obviously the patient view is one of the more important ones. So, again, um, we're going to frustrate you by me and Ian agreeing more than we did. <laughs> that, 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 that's, exa that's exactly the point that I make in my article, is that I think that uh, the bloody eosinophil count is not perfect. It's by far the best COPD biomarker that we have, and now the most extensively studied with all of the publications that we have. Uh, but it, it can only be one of the characteristics that you take into account, because it isn't a perfect reflection of airway eosinophilic information. So I think where we've got uh, near universal agreement, I think, is the patients with less than 150 cells. There's simply no evidence that those patients uh, benefit from an ICS, and there's some evidence that they, they get harm. Above 300 cells, the wisdom analysis that Ian referred to uh, showed very clearly that those patients started to do worse. Um, but the, the important point is that within that wisdom study, there were 2,296 patients, and only about 400 patients just over 400 patients that had eosinophil counts above 300 cells, and those were the patients that did worse. So that, that gives the, 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 the group that certainly seems to benefit is around 20%. And then the debate that Ian and I will have is what you do with the patients that are in the middle, where the, the biomarker gives you some indication yeah. that the biomarker is, is kind of equivocal. And so then you really do have to take into account those things that Ian was... Uh, talking about how worried is the patient about having the ICS withdrawn? How how concerned would the patient be if they got one exacerbation next year? How well did the patient respond initially to uh, being put on the ICS? Because if they were a terrific responder, there's there's little justification in, in withdrawing it. But on the other hand, if they're getting ICS-associated uh, um, uh, side effects and they didn't have a history of exacerbations prior to the ICS introduction... Then, then these are patients where you may consider withdrawing the ICS. As a oh, I think that's uh, reasonable. I, I, I would say in the borderline group, the 150 to 300, we could say quite a large group of patients. I'm not sure, but maybe up to 30% of the total wisdom population. I can't remember exactly. Um, where the benefit risks you may regard as being more equivocal. I think we have to recognize that what we're applying here is a treatment that is relatively safe and relatively cheap, um, not, <laughs> not very cheap. Um, and so, you know, one's threshold might be lower. You might have some tolerance to over-treatment. Certainly, we don't want to be over-treating to the point where we are now, but you might you might be prepared to accept that you're going to treat a few people arguably unnecessarily uh, because the risk of the intervention is low. Um, uh, but you know, in contrast, if you're thinking of applying a, a biological treatment that's going to cost a lot of money, you would want very convincing evidence that the biological process was there. I think this is just the way medicine is done, and it's um, you know um, common sense, it seems to me, but. I would argue that the 150 to 300, um, um, the risks are low and there is some like, possible benefit, so I would treat. Um, but uh, we probably need more data, James. We both agree. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think we would both agree with that. I think, yeah, I mean, it depends yeah. where you come from as a physician, doesn't it? And maybe this is where we can find some difference between you and I. I really want, so if I'm going to give anything to a patient, I always come from a position of, um, I want you to prove to me that this is going to work. 
uh, as opposed to um, I want you to prove that it's not going to do too much harm. And so in, in the 150 to 300 group, I do want to see that data that says that the patients really do benefit um, and benefit to a clinically meaningful degree. Um, and so that's where I think the history of exacerbations to me helps because the main benefit of ICS is to reduce exacerbations. And so even if you can show a borderline benefit in that group, um, if it's not clinically meaningful, if you're going to get a number needed to treat, like in the recent triple study of 11, you know, you have to treat a patient for 11 years before they get one fewer exacerbation. That, to me, isn't worth giving the patient an additional treatment, even if it's a relatively um, low-cost intervention, as you mentioned. But it's one of these things that I'm sure can be addressed by, by looking at some of the emerging triple therapy data. Yeah, um, and what we don't know, and we might learn from this emerging data, is what are the effects of inhaled steroids on other, on other key longer-term outcomes like decline in lung function and even mortality. I mean, the TORCH study uh, showed a borderline statistically significant 19% reduction in, in mortality from COPD with um, inhaled steroid lab a combination treatment. And uh, what, what we haven't seen is that data broken down by bloody eosinophil counts because, that, unfortunately, that biomarker, I mean, it sounds unbelievable now, but it wasn't measured in the study, so we don't have the ability to go back and look at that data. But it may be that, that most of that mortality signal was in the eosinophil high group or in the above 150 group. And uh, clearly you know, we, we use a lot of treatments solely for mortality benefits, you know, statins, uh, blood pressure, drugs. Uh, um, and uh, we do need to know more about the impact of inhaled steroids on mortality. Um, I, I, would just, I would just caution there that obviously we have had prospective studies that have been designed to address those questions. So we have had... Some it was a, was a trial designed... Yeah, but that, again, uh, no bloody sniffle counted data available there, so no, no, we, I, we, we don't... I accept that. Yeah, yeah. but, yeah, but yeah. Uh, you know, until, until we see a prospectively designed trial that looks at that specific question, I think we should just be, we should be cautious about well, any interpretation that says... And, and, and can I throw out for a second? Remind me, correct me if I'm wrong, but also in TORCH, the steroid-only arm did the same as placebo. So if we're arguing that the combo of the ICS lava was the potential improvement, I don't know if that's the most compelling argument for inhaled corticosteroids, and it's maybe more of a uh, argument for the effect of the lava and the prolonged bronchodilation. Yeah, um, yeah, you, that that is uh, uh, absolutely I can't prove uh, that. possible. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, you're quite right in saying that. Yeah, yeah, and the and the other thing is with the lung function. You know, I I think that that's it's important to revisit that. I mean, we've had trials in the past that were specifically designed to address the question of whether ICS affect lung function and that, that, that were negative, and then subsequently the SUMMIT study did show a small effect on lung function decline with ICS treatment, but that was a, a secondary outcome in a trial where most of the yeah. other out outcomes were negative. And so I think we have, yeah. to be, we have to be careful not to cherry-pick secondary outcomes that look exciting yeah. and, 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 and prospectively design studies if we want to make those sorts of claims for ICS. Uh, they're enormously difficult to do, um, obviously, and, you know, what, what, one thing we've learned in recent years is a significant cohort of people with COPD have had uh, sig yeah, imp 
impaired lung function for uh, probably since uh, uh, early infancy, and uh, you know they're not progressing. And we, we clearly need to be able to pull that group out if we're interested in decline in lung function. We need to be studying people that have an abnormal decline. I think Isoldi, which was a 20-year-old study, yeah. was uh, interesting. That 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 uh, was a three-year study. It looked at inhaled steroids on their own versus placebo on decline. Uh, it was a negative study, but we recently run uh, a analysis in the eosinophil high and low, and, and, and the, the findings were striking. In the eosinophil high subgroup, decline was um, increased, so they had 75 mil per year loss of lung function on placebo, which was almost halved with inhaled steroids. So that was a very impressive um, post hoc finding. Obviously, it does need to be confirmed, but, you know, we do need to be aware of the possibility that inhaled steroids might have other longer-term benefits over and above the exacerbation. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's entirely believable, um, and hopefully, you know, you're working very actively in this area, as are others. We can identify a kind of risk score that will find patients that are yeah. rapid decliners where you could do yeah. an adequately powered study to demonstrate that. Um, yeah. Because I, even though I'm, I have historically been relatively skeptical, I do think there will be a subgroup of patients where um, ICS are disease-modifying because we know they're disease-modifying in asthma, so it makes sense that yeah. there will be a subgroup within yeah. COPD where they're disease-modifying. Um, and it is just a question of finding who are those patients and how big is the group. You know what I found very exciting when I read uh, James's um, uh, article and uh, uh, the rebuttal was that, um, to me, it seems that there's really an emerging consensus that we need to move away from one size fits all and we need to be looking at subgroups. And what's really exciting, sometimes in medicine, it's important to know what you can't do. It's more important to know what you can't do than what you can do in some ways. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, in, in, in clearly defining a group of patients with COPD who derive no benefit from a treatment, the immediate uh, response is, well, what is driving their morbidity and what can we do about it? And that's exciting because we have a framed question there we can begin picking away at. And I know James is very interested in other inflammatory processes that might be driving disease, including your persistent or low-grade airway infection, which my personal view is, 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 is probably a, a very important treatable trait in many patients. Um, and there's always the possibility that inhaled steroids, you know, promote that phenotype. I think that's a very exciting idea. I don't know, James, if, you, if you've got anything to say about that possibility. Well, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, so that, I mean, that's where I come from as a bit of a skeptic about ICS is, you know, I did my PhD in neutrophil biology and airway infection and uh, have always believed that that's a, a, a much larger group of COPD patients have neutrophilic airway inflammation if you look down a microscope at their sputum samples. Uh, neutrophils respond very poorly to inhaled steroids. In fact, ICS prolong their lifespan and potentially can exacerbate inflammation. Um, and there's a very nice uh, trial that's just been published in the European Respiratory Journal where uh, patients were randomized to either ICS, LABA, or LABA alone, uh, and the microbiome was looked at for 12 months, and there was a clear increase in bacterial load 
in the patients with low eosinophils, who are the neutrophilic patients, um, when they were given an ICS versus a bronchodilator, uh, which gives kind of experimental validity to the findings that, that you made, Ian, with regard to the pneumonia risk associated in, with ICS in low eosinophil patients. It's, it's very uh, likely that if you treat a patient that's got a lot of airway inflammation with, uh, uh, with neutrophils with an immunosuppressive, that bacteria will increase and they'll be at higher risk of developing infections. Um, and so I, I think it is really exciting that we're starting to understand that one size fits all is the wrong approach and there will be groups who benefit and groups that, that potentially are harmed by therapy. And we actually now have relatively simple clinical variables and biomarkers that can pick that out. Yeah, I'm... Um... Uh, I, I guess for me, a treatable trait, uh, the whole essence of the concept is it has to be a characteristic that you can measure or identify relatively simply. And um, there I have some problems with airway infection because, I mean, we all do sputum cultures and uh, I don't see that as a particularly sensitive test. I don't know what your views are um, and whether we could do better um, is it reasonable to assume that a patient with chronic cough and perilent or mucoperilent sputum who has low biomarkers of eosinophilic airway inflammation has infection-driven disease? I mean, these are all sort of the sorts of questions that we can begin to start focusing on, and uh, I know you already have, but I think there's going to be significant progress in this area. And, of course, we know that macrolides are an effective treatment. Um, and in the AMAZES study and in, in severe asthma, uh, that effect seemed to be apparent in eosinophil low and eosinophil high patients. So this is a treatment that has a very different profile of beneficial effects compared to you know, type 2 biological treatments, which clearly only work in eosinophil high. So uh, I'm really excited because... <laughs> You know, we know what we can't do, and we start to look for what the opportunities are in that group. Um, and, uh, you know, we will have better treatment options. No, I think, you know, when you look at the natural evolution, even if you just take the gold guidelines and see how they have changed over the years, it, it gives you an insight to the evolution of how we're approaching COPD and trying to subdivide our patients and move away from a one-size-fits-all and move away from even just classifying them based on their um, spirometric measurements. Um, it, it's exciting times because I think the, you know, the, the joke that I've made in the past was that historically, go back a decade, you know, the, the treatment of COPD was close your eyes and point at an inhaler and you were probably doing okay based on the data we had. And, you know, that's clearly not an acceptable approach, which, we, which is why the core of this debate, I mean, let's face it, 10 years ago, this debate, this would have been a, both of you just would have wrote no, you know, and, and we've evolved, right? And our data is evolving. It's exciting times. Yeah, yeah I, think, I agree. Uh, I agree. Yeah. Sorry, James, I, you go. No, absolutely. I, I totally agree. I think that um, gold is moving really fast. 
Um, and there's lots and lots of data coming through. Ian mentioned the macrolide data. I know that there's some more antibiotic data coming quite soon with things like tetracyclines. And so you're going to see, I think, a lot more uh, alternative treatments being suggested for COPD, um, including the biologics that Ian's mentioned, uh, potentially, and, and much less reliance on just pick one out of two uh, inhaled therapies. Right. Uh, one of the point one of the points that I made in my uh, in my article, um, which I think is really important, is we should stop treating inhaled steroids as if they're something special, because they're one of many treatments that we have for COPD, and they should be on an equal footing with, you know, pulmonary rehabilitation, macrolides, all of the other things that we can potentially do to treat a a treatable trait of of COPD. Um, and there's nothing magical about them, just as there's nothing magical about bronchodilators. They're all part of a multidisciplinary, uh, multi-pronged approach to dealing with COPD morbidity. Um, and we should view them as, as one tool amongst many, rather than as you, you started by saying, you know, taking them away would be heresy 10 years ago, and that's right. But we've, we've evolved to a point where we can look at patients as um, complex biological systems with multiple things that we can potentially modify, uh, and only one of those is uh, is inhaled corticosteroids and eosinophilic inflammation. I think that's that's real progress from a way that we think about the disease. Exciting times. <laughs> so, gentlemen, what what haven't we talked about? What, what you know in between? Your, I mean, the, your and for the listeners who've not yet had the opportunity to uh, read the ProCon debate. Um, I, I highly suggest you do. It's, it's, it's extremely well written, but it also, you know, expands upon, uh, you know, the discussion you've heard today, and then, and also obviously with, with great references. And it's a, it's a sort of if, if you really want to dive deep into how to manage COPD in a modern way and, and understand the data, the, the, these two gentlemen really expand on it very nicely. So definitely, the listeners move in that direction and grab the articles. But what is there anything uh, from? Well, I, I, I would like to just talk briefly about the FLAME study and sure. um, the, uh, the 2017 gold uh, guidelines, because I think there, there has been a move away from inhaled stewards that's gone a little too far for me. I'm concerned about the, the, the FLAME study for a, for a number of reasons. I mean, this, just, just as a summary, uh, compared um, LABA ICS to a, a LABA LAMA and showed I think unexpectedly that the lava lama was significantly better um, in patient reported outcomes, but also uh, exacerbations. Um, but the, the difficulty I had with the study was that um, the, the patients had to be able to survive for a significant period off inhaled steroids in order to be eligible for randomization into the study. So it's sort of kind of um, the, the EU were potentially studying a biased population and um, uh, overestimating the benefits of uh, a non-inhaled steroid-containing regime. Um, and the other point to make about flame was when we finally got the blood eosinophil cuts, the, the benefits of LABA-LAMA over LABA-ICS got less and less apparent with um, higher blood eosinophil counts. And, uh, you know, above 300, really, there was no important difference. Uh, another point that I'd like to make, if uh, while well, I'm... <laughs> Please. Got, is that, that, that the um, C 
COPD is heterogeneous, but exacerbations of COPD are heterogeneous as well. Excellent point. So um, 30% of exacerbations in, in um, large clinical trials are treated with antibiotics alone. Now, in asthma studies, those aren't counted as exacerbations, um, but they are in COPD studies. And, and we've known really since the INSPIRE study 10 years ago that long-acting bronchodilators are very good at, at preventing antibiotic-only exacerbations, but less good at preventing exacerbations treated with steroids. And interesting, with mepolizumab, anti-IL-5, in the study that, um, that I uh, led recently, um, it was exactly the opposite. So mepolizumab really looked very effective at uh, preventing exacerbations treated with oral steroids, but had absolutely no effect on antibiotic-treated exacerbations. So, so either patients or their doctors are picking out different types of exacerbations and treating them in different ways. And our main prophylactic treatment strategies um, seem to have different effects on um, antibiotic-treated and uh, steroid-treated exacerbations. So I think we need to start phenotyping exacerbations. And I think the blood eosinophil count has potential. Um, Mona Baffadel here in Oxford has shown that, um, that patients who have a low blood eosinophil count that are treated with prednisolone in the context of an exacerbation do very poorly with treatment. In fact, they seem to do rather better if they're given placebo. Whereas patients with, an eosinophil, with a higher eosinophil count clearly benefit from prednisolone. So I think what, what we need to do is start thinking about COPD phenotypes, but also exacerbation phenotypes, and try and ask ourselves, what sort of exacerbations is this patient having? And, you know, how can I best prevent that type of exacerbation? So, I mean, this didn't really come out in the pro-con debate, but I think it's an important, this will be an increasingly important question. Yeah. James, so, what do you think? Yeah, if I, if I can add to that. So there's a, there's a counter to that, which is the, uh, also in the macrolide trials. So in the, uh, the Dutch macrolide trial, if you looked at their exacerbations by uh, whether they were treated with antibiotic steroids or both, the macrolides reduced antibiotic and combined exacerbations, but not steroid-treated exacerbations. So it's further evidence that you can pick a therapy based on what kind of exacerbations the patients have. Uh, and that's been consistently shown with the ICS studies that they only reduce the, the steroid-treated exacerbations. So even without a biomarker, I can tell you in my clinical practice, um, I, I ask every patient whether they've got COPD, asthma, or bronchiectasis when they come with frequent exacerbations, which treatment seems to help your exacerbations the most because they've, yeah. oh. they've almost always had steroids and or antibiotics separately and together at some point in their in their history, and often the patients can absolutely pinpoint that when they get antibiotics, it takes them two courses to get better, but if they get steroids, they're better within three or four days, um, and, it, and it, often does, it often does track with the bloody azinophil count, but not always, um, but it does really predict what the patient's likely to respond to. Um, that's, that's anecdotal evidence, but I've been doing that in my practice for, for many years and, and find that very, very helpful, uh, particularly in those patients that seem to have mixed airways disease where you're not sure exactly what, what's the main process that's driving the exacerbations. 
So I, I would agree completely that a frequent exacerbating patient uh, doesn't just need a protocolized try this, try this, try this. You need to try and figure out what it is that's driving the exacerbations, which could be airway infection, it could be eosinophilic inflammation, it could be comorbidities, it could be rhinitis, nasal disease, gastroesophageal reflux. You need to go through these, again, coming back to this idea of treatable traits and think about, think about your patient in the whole uh, and, and give the appropriate treatment that, that treats the pathology that's driving the exacerbations. Yeah, I'm, um, I also uh, really interrogate the patient about their experience with prednisolone. I, I find that to be a very useful bit of information. And as you say, James, they've, they've all had some exposure at some point. And what you're looking for is a patient that says, this is a really effective treatment for me. <laughs> when I'm on steroids, I can breathe. <laughs> And, right. you know, that's what I'm hearing. That's what I'm lo looking for. Um, and uh, that, that um, almost invariably, in my, in my experience, is a, a suggests that the patient has type 2 high biology and, um, and it, it will likely benefit from an inhaled steroids and perhaps also a biological agent. And, uh, you know, we'll have to see how that, that pans out. Um, uh, in the MEPO study that I mentioned earlier, you know, we had 10% of our, of our recruited population had a blood eosinophil count of above 500 cells per microliter. Uh, and uh, the combined metrics and metrio studies was big population, um, well over uh, 1,000 patients. And um, uh, of the 10%, the 100 patients that had a blood eosinophil count of 500, they were never treated, their exacerbations were never treated with antibiotics alone, which I found very interesting. <laughs> Whereas in the eosinophil low group, um, really quite a lot of the exacerbations were treated with antibiotics alone. So I think what primary care doctors are doing is listening to the patient, which of course is what you should do. Um, and the patient says, you know, don't, don't worry about the antibiotics, doctor, just give me those steroids, they always fix me. Um, or the patient says, don't give me steroids, all they do is give me side effects and I get no benefit. Um, yeah. And it also sounds like at a minimum, uh, the culture shift for the uh, pulmonary and respiratory physician is we're going to have to draw more blood to be looking at the acidophil counts. It's not been one of our things that we've done, I think, culture. Yeah. Well, the, in, the, in, the, in the UK, um, um, when we, we did a primary care-based um, database-based study, and I think the average patient with COPD have seven relatively recent full blood counts available in their wow. electronic patient records. So, so it's, uh, these are a group of patients that tend to have blood tests done. So, so there's, uh, if, if you do have access to an electronic patient record, there should be data done. And I think you know, it would be mandatory in the UK to do a full blood count in a patient who's breathless. Um, so... Yeah, so we, would, we, we tend to have a lot of information. Yeah, yeah I would just add, because there may be people listening to the podcast who, who this is the first time they've really heard about using eosinophils to guide COPD treatment, just to uh, throw out a couple of warnings, which are, uh, of course, systemic steroids will suppress your bloody eosinophil count acutely, so be, right. be wary of a bloody eosinophil count taken while the patient's either on or has recently discontinued steroids because it will be misleadingly low. Um, and, and think about looking at more than one bloody eosinophil count 
uh, if you've got access to multiple counts because you will see the odd patient who, rather than being consistently low or consistently high, actually bounces up and down uh, right. depending, on, depending on how they are. Um, and there is, a, there is that kind of intermediate group that are sometimes eosinophilic and sometimes not. Um, and so just, I think, be wary of the limitations of it as a biomarker. I think it is a really useful biomarker, uh, but it has those two limitations, that be careful of systemic steroids, uh, and one eosinophil count is not as valuable as having multiple eosinophil counts. And, and, and probably the other caveat is that uh, depending on uh, where the patient is from or visited, that there are other reasons people have eosinophils <laughs> outside of their airways so, disease. <laughs> that's, a, that's a really great point. So um, a, colleague, a colleague of mine from India stood up at a, at a meeting I was at quite recently and said that the cutoffs that we're using are, are completely useless in, in their environment where um, um, parasitic diseases and similar things are are so common and most of their patients have raised bloody eosinophil counts, which wasn't something that I, I thought of, but clearly in some parts of the world, um, the normal range for eosinophil counts will be very different to how it is in, in Oxford or Dundee. Perfect. Yes, I mean, I, I, I haven't seen any data on that, but it's an interesting idea and that's clearly something that needs to be looked at. Um, Perfect. Gentlemen, what else? What else? I want to be respectful of your time. Uh, we're, we're recording this. It's been a, a long day for both of you, and it's currently freezing in the United Kingdom while we're recording this. <laughs> so, well, uh, well, I'm. Um, the last two minutes. If I, I could just. Like, ask. I feel like. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. No, you go actually, James, because I, I was going to ask you a question. I'll ask it afterwards. So oh, I'll, you go I'll, first. I'll ask, I was going to ask you a question as well. I feel. <laughs> I feel like. I feel like we've agreed about everything. Um, for the last. <laughs> For the last 30 minutes, so we need to try desperately to find something that we don't agree on. Um, <laughs> There's got to be a disagreement over which football team. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah, so, so, so I was going to ask. So about the only thing I could find in your in your arguments that I that I couldn't quite bring myself to agree with, or where I thought there was a bit of a bit of clear blue water between us, was what would we do with a patient that doesn't have a history of exacerbations but does have high blood eosinophils? And I wonder if we can explore that patient um, because I get, the, I get the impression that you maybe feel confident that you would want to give the, the ICS there anyway, whereas I would be a bit more reticent if there isn't a history of exacerbations because I'm not sure I feel that the data is there yet to say that that, that would be disease-modifying for that patient. So I thought that, that might just be one area where we can have a proper debate. Yeah, well, I, I would want to know whether they're not having exacerbations because they're responding well to the inhaled steroids. So I think you, you have to get that from the from the history. So were they having exacerbations until they started the inhaled steroid, and now they're better? Um, clearly, in that situation, uh, withdrawing inhaled steroids doesn't make much sense. Um, Drugs but James, are, were you positing that they, they've not yet been started on inhaled steroids? You, let's say you have yes, them on a yes. lava so lava and they're doing great, but they have high yeah. EOs. Let's, yeah, let's make it as difficult yeah. for Ian as possible. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, um, I might be tempted to try inhaled steroids for the following reason. So we, we've done a lot of analyses, post hoc, I accept, of... Uh, uh, the addition of inhaled steroids to labbers um, in patients with COPD um, by blood baseline blood eosinophil count. 
And uh, what we found um, is clearly the exacerbation benefit of inhaled steroids is related to the blood eosinophil count, but one or two of the studies have also suggested that the lung function and um, quality of life benefit, which is generally very modest with inhaled steroids, and we don't use the drugs to make people feel better largely. But when you look at the higher eosinophil counts, you do start seeing very reasonable improvements in FEV1 with inhaled steroids and, uh, and you know, very reasonable improvements in uh, St. George's quality of life scores. Um, in not all studies, but uh, certainly I'm thinking about the Salman Siddiqui paper with um, the Chiesi drugs. Um, and why should the patient not have the opportunity to, to get that benefit, you know, improving symptoms and airflow limitation are key goals. And in this, in this population, you may well achieve that. Um, okay, they're not having exacerbations. I mean, another point to make is that, uh, um, it, you know, why wait until they have an event? The, the biomarker tells you that there's a risk and apply the treatment uh, before they have an event. And a cardiologist wouldn't wait until you've uh, had a, a severe heart attack or a, a cerebrovascular accident before lowering your blood pressure, for example. Yeah, so, um, yeah, I, I, think, I think, look, there's, there's clearly no, no right or wrong answer. It's on every, it's, it's down to every individual patient and their perception right. of risk. Um, I, I don't feel that, that a moderate exacerbation is the same as a heart attack. You know, many of our patients do have one exacerbation per year, and I don't view that as, a, as, a, as a, the same as a myocardial infarction. Hospitalizations are a different matter, but um, I think, some of the recent studies are quite informative on this. So Tribute has just uh, been published comparing triple therapy against dual therapy, which I think is a more helpful comparison than, than ICS against LABOR. And um, there wasn't, and that was in a relatively low exacerbating population, there wasn't really much in the way of a health status benefit. So the, the comparison mm -hmm. between with St. George's Respiratory Questionnaire, for example, were not statistically significant. Um, and the rates of exacerbations in both of the groups were, were low. And I mentioned the number before, but the, the number needed to treat to prevent one exacerbation was 11, meaning for the addition of the ICS, uh, you would require to treat a patient for 11 years before you would have one less exacerbation. And even in the higher eosinophil group in that trial, um, there really wasn't much additional benefit of adding in the ICS. Now, it's a bit like flame. You don't want to overinterpret one study. Um, but it would, it would push me towards not feeling that I had to intervene in that low um, exacerbating population, even if they had a, a raised blood ears in a full count. So it's great that we finally found something that we slightly disagree <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> would we, would we, and from the perspective of our listeners, and they're trying to tease through all this, it, it seems that there's agreement upon that if you are a uh, gold three but have low eosinophilic count, that there's not a role for inhaled corticosteroids in general, but that if there's a um, high eosinophil count and you've been stable on inhaled steroids, it's 
reasonable to consider a withdrawal, obviously, with the patient's uh, discussion and permission, et cetera. It sounds like James would be more in favor of that than Ian would be, but that there wouldn't be strong disagreement. But on a, a so-called virgin patient who you've got on, say, lamellaba and high EOs, whether to start ICS, there's a definite disagreement right now, and, and it would be uh, up to the clinician to have a discussion with their patient on the pros and cons of that. Does that summarize it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I wouldn't withdraw inhaled steroids in a stable person that's already on them. Um, right, right. Uh, uh, who'd, who'd got the biological signal, uh, that would be... Um, uh, because my feeling is that they may well have been st- stable as a result of the treatment. Um, so, so yeah, otherwise I, I, I agree with everything you say. James as well? Yeah, absolutely. So, so my current practice for withdrawal is um, I do look at the blood ears in a full count. I look at the history of exacerbations. In patients that don't exacerbate and have low blood eosinophil counts, I feel very confident that I can withdraw. In the patients that have high blood eosinophil counts and a history of exacerbations, um, I don't withdraw because that's supported by wisdom that those patients will will do badly if you withdraw. Uh, And then the middle group who maybe have a raised blood eosinophil count or occasionally have a raised blood eosinophil count but don't exacerbate and didn't exacerbate in the past, or particularly the ones that... that, um, that maybe had one or two exacerbations but don't have a raised blood eosinophil count, um, I have that conversation with the patient about risks and benefits and we decide what's best for them. Um, so I think there's, what we've established today is there's pretty good agreement about what to do with low blood eosinophil count patients that don't exacerbate, which is think about withdrawal. The patients that have the biological process plus the exacerbations, there's complete agreement they need to stay on the ICS. Right. And then there's just, there's just a bit of debate in the middle, um, <laughs> and that's where we need a bit more of the science. Right. I think Perfect. what, um, that, that, uh, James, you, you talked about the PAPI study that's just been published in the European Respiratory Journal, which, and I agree with you, it's a very important and provocative study. This is a study where inhaled steroids were introduced in patients uh, and uh, showing evidence of increased uh, airway bacterial uh, colonization or infection, I never really know the difference, to be honest. I mean, when bacteria are present in the airway, one tends to see neutrophilic airway inflammation, so I always think it's infection is the right term. But but um, uh, that's a really important study, Uh, and and I, I think if we nailed that, uh, it would add a great deal of momentum to to the direction that we we're both advocating. And uh, are you aware of any other work that's going on in that in that uh, area? Um, it strikes yeah. me as being of fundamental importance, actually, that we do we do <laughs> nail this question. Yeah. So this is this is going this is going to sound like you set this up, Ian. But we're doing a trial at the moment, which is um, um, comparing uh, Labalama against ICS Laba in patients with eosinophil counts lower than 300 cells uh, where the primary outcome is bacterial load. Um, so that's a multi And how are you, I mean, that, that's very exciting. And, uh, you know, I think there'll be a lot of interest in that. But how are you quantifying the um, bacterial presence? Because this, this is a difficult area, I feel. Yeah. No, um, so we're, so we're, we're, doing, we're doing quantitative PCR in sputum and also in throat and nasal swabs to get the, 
the full airway sort of um, view of the bacterial infection associated with ICS um, or labalama. Um, and also doing, as well as doing qPCR, we're doing the microbiome sequencing by 16S um, uh, PCR. Yeah. So it's, so it's a, a broad view of, of airway yeah. infection using modern molecular techniques. Yeah, I guess people will need to buy that these are uh, uh, clinically important biomarkers, and that, that's, that's where the difficulty lies, doesn't it? Um, uh, in, in that we, we haven't been able to. Yeah. You made that point earlier that the work that needs to go alongside that is finding yeah. a text or a biomarker that can clearly identify pathogenic airway mm -hmm. infection that's going to lead to, uh, to increased mm -hmm. exacerbations. Um, so when, when we looked, I mean, Haemophilus seems to be so dominant in, uh, in the setting of COPD, and particularly this, this concept that, that the steroid-treated airway is susceptible to uh, infection. I, could it all be driven by Haemophilus? Has Haemophilus found a way to thrive in the steroid-treated airway? And if so, you know, why? What, what's the mechanism? Yeah, so, I mean, so we, we published a paper last year in the Journal of Allergy and Clinical Immunology where we were able to show that those patients that had Haemophilus in their microbiome were the ones that had the greatest neutrophil-dominant airway inflammation. Uh, and those, they had a specific type of neutrophil airway inflammation, which was instead of trying to phagocytose the bacteria, they were doing this what, sort of cellular suicide process called neutrophil extracellular trap formation that Haemophilus... Mm -hmm. Haemophilus is resistant to killing through that mechanism, so it survives in the airway because the neutrophils do that. Um, and the, the, the final part of that paper, we were able to show uh, that cortico inhaled corticosteroids exacerbate that process. Um, and so that may be one of the mechanisms by which um, uh, ICS treatment selects for airway infection, and particularly with Haemophilus. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot more work. Yeah be done in that area because neutrophil in COPD world is 10 years behind the eosinophil in COPD world in terms of getting the biomarkers and things. Um, but we're, we're but there's a clear direction of travel, is there not? That's why I'm, I'm, I'm excited. It does seem to me that, you know, there's, that, that, that the research questions are becoming rather clearer um, and, and they look like the questions that we can, uh, that we can answer. Um, and, I, you know, I see real progress being made in this area. I'm just on the question of inhaled steroids and Haemophilus. I think Tim Hinks, who's in Oxford, has just joined us here, has um, shown that, that mate cell numbers in the airway are reduced by inhaled steroids, and I think systemically as well, and that, that, that your mate cells are potentially a key part of the... Um, uh, the, you know, our defense against Haemophilus in particular, you know, it's, it's a bacteria that can become intracellular. And so there, there may be multiple pathways that are, that are inhibited by inhaled steroids, which uh, increase the probability that Haemophilus will, will establish a niche. And in our experience, you know, Mona Baffadel has done a lot of this work. It's, it's, Haemophilus is really the only bacteria, other than Pseudomonas in very severe disease, that we isolate repeatedly over months and sometimes years. Yeah.
Yeah, and that, so that's also the experience of all of the microbiome studies that have so far been published in COPD. Is that, I mean, you do find smatterings of these other often gram-negative organisms like Moraxella, particularly at exacerbation. But the, the chronic infection in COPD is really dominated by Haemophilus. It's the, it's the most important pathogen in the disease um, for that neutrophilic phenotype. Um, yeah. and again, again, like you, I'm excited because finally we're understanding these things, which means that we can start to develop approaches to try and treat those patients. Yeah, yeah. And do you think the macrolide effect is uh, you, that there's a there's a deficiency in our knowledge so that we haven't clearly shown that the macrolide effect is uh, specific to a population who have. Uh, infection or colonization. The AMAZES study, the asthma, severe asthma study that Peter Gibson did, um, efficacy was much more apparent in people that had positive sputum cultures, but, it, you know, it wasn't, um, wasn't very, it wasn't a brilliant biomarker, but the, the, there was a signal there. And I think one of the things we have to do is to, is to show convincingly that that's where macrolides are acting. Uh, and do other do other antimicrobials have similar effects? Is there something non-antimicrobial that macrolides do? These are these are key questions. Yeah. So I, I mean, I believe there are comparative studies going on looking at macrolides against things like tetracyclines that that may help to answer mm. some of those questions um, because macrolides have so many diverse effects, yeah. Yeah. their anti-inflammatory effects to their their. Uh, gastric stimulant effects to reduce reflux, but uh, it's very difficult to tease out what macrolides are actually doing to, to reduce exacerbations, and they may be doing different things in different people. Um, and so that, that's a difficult question to answer. But it's one, it's one of those studies that should be, uh, that, that should be addressable um, if we can get mm. biological samples from these macrolide trials and look mm. at responders versus yeah. not responders, there will be signatures that we can identify, and there will be some populations. Yeah. So yes, it's rather surprising in the asthma study, the amazing study, that the benefits of macrolides were independent of eosinophilic airway inflammation. Um, so it looked to me like the pathology that macrolides are um, addressing is laid on top of the native pathology. Um, so if, you, if you've got eosinophilic airway inflammation, you can still have hemophilus-associated neutrophilic airway inflammation on top of that, uh, which, which was unexpected for me. Yeah, yeah so, so I wasn't surprised by that because even in patients mm. that have raised um, sputum eosinophil counts, you do see the majority of cells are still neutrophils. So as a, as mm. a neutrophil enthusiast, um, mm. I... I I thought this confirmed that neutrophils are important in the majority of the yeah. patients, even the ones who have yeah. uh, eosinophilic inflammation. And I felt that was mm. one of the things that came out of the mepiluzumab studies was that um, mm. in the patients with high blood eosinophils, they definitely got a benefit from, um, from having IL-5 therapy, but many of them were still having exacerbations. And so yeah, yeah, some of yeah, their exacerbations yeah. are obviously eosinophil-driven, but there are clearly other aspects of their COPD that are also contributing to, to their exacerbation. Yeah. And one of those are probably yeah. neutrophilic inflammation as well. You don't have to... It, it's, it's the idea of treatable traits, coming back again, mm. is patients can have as yeah. many treatable traits as they want. Meaning they may require more than one therapy. Mm. 
Right. It reinforces that the one-size-fits-all approach isn't going to work for us. Yep. Yep, correct. So, guys, this has been a fantastic discussion, and I think for our listeners, without a doubt, um, as, 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 as we kept going and you got, uh, I think, uh, a nice uh, introduction to everything, the different directions that the research is going, and, and, and I think more importantly for, for people in practice to, to realize that the, the approach that they're going to take to COPD is going to be evolving, and evolving rapidly uh, year by year, both from the perspective of, of our interventions, but also on which intervention you're going to choose from. So, without a doubt, stay tuned because uh, exciting times are ahead. But uh, James and Ian, I, I, I want to thank you both so much for just a fantastic discussion. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you. And thank you. This and was... thank, thanks very much to Ian for um, what was a great, really great experience writing these articles. Yeah, no, I enjoyed it as well. It was, uh, it was good. Yeah. Perfect. Gentlemen, thank you so much, and thank you for your time.